All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and uh, I'm talking to you from New York City on this, the 15th day of August 2017. Before I talk more about today's show, let me remind you that I am the editor of Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks and that you can subscribe to that letter by going to miningstocks.com or you can call our office at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. Also, like to encourage you to consider subscribing to Chen Lin's letter. He has had a remarkable track record over the years and uh, that address is chenpicks.com, chenpicks.com. I do want to thank each of you for listening to this show and making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. I'd also like to encourage you to continue sending your questions, comments, criticisms, and praises along to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Um, I want to thank our sponsors for making the show economically viable. They are New Range Gold, RN Resources, Novo Resources, Genesis Metals Corp., Fireweed Zinc Limited, and Osprey Gold Development. I have titled today's show, The Largest Gold Discovery in Over 133 Years? Question mark. Well, since mid-July, when Novo Resources announced the discovery of in-situ gold nuggets in its Australian gold exploration project, the company's stock has been on a tear. Actually, it has been exploding like a rocket, having risen from around 65 cents on July 10th to $4.43 earlier today. It's, I saw just before showtime, it was $4.21. I, I have been talking to about Novo Resources in this show more often than any other company because over the past several years, I have seen this as the most exciting story I have ever covered. Most helpful to me in keeping me on track and owning Novo personally and in my newsletter has been the constant availability of Novo's CEO, Dr. Quentin Henning, to me He's always been available when I've had questions. His geological theory about how so much gold was deposited at the South African Whitwaters ran has led him to northwestern Australia, where it seems increasingly likely that he has found another Whitwaters ran type gold deposit. Of course, we don't know yet how, how much gold, what the grades and that sort of thing are, but it's looking enormously promising. And it is this remarkable story that has caused this stock to rise very dramatically. And if it were, if it is anywhere nearly as big as some of us think it might be, these shares could rise dramatically higher. At the same time, as Dr. Henning notes, this is a speculative story. Perhaps in another three months or so, when many more samples are collected, the beginning of a legitimate picture of the company's exciting gold project may come into focus. Um, 
And in fact, uh, I will be talking to Dr. Henning in just a few minutes from now, so I'm sure you're going to want to hear what he has to say about the uh, about the fundamentals underlying uh, this exciting discovery. Just for those of you who may not be familiar, the Witwaters Rand deposit of South Africa, some 1.6 billion ounces of gold have been mined uh, and uh, over the, since uh, about 133 years ago. Hence, that's the reason for the title of today's show. And as I say, Dr. Henning will be with me uh, in, in just a few minutes. Alistair McLeod will be joining me in the second half of today's show to talk about what really drives the markets. Actually, it's not fundamentals, as, uh, as Alistair will tell you. It has everything to do about the credit cycle, where the money is flowing. It's all about availability of money. There's a lot of psychology involved in there. Uh, why is the equity market seemingly defying gravity forever? Well, Michael Oliver has been telling us for some time that it can't, and ultimately, it will not defy gravity. I'm really glad to have Michael here today with me. Thanks for joining me, Michael. Oh, good to be here, Jay. Just really good. Now, we just have a few minutes, but I, I, you put out a very important piece in your weekly missive uh, at OliverMSA.com telling us why we may be on the precipice of something to the upside, and, and perhaps considerably so in the gold market. Can you explain to our listeners? Sure. Yeah, and by the way, uh, OliverMSA.com, there is a, a tab on that site uh, to request samples. In this report, oh. we will provide as a sample to anybody who wants it. It's a weekend report, and on the first page, a, we're always, first off, we're always looking at all markets from different time scales. We don't just look at daily price or anything like that. We look at momentum primarily, but we also focus on longer-term trends of momentum, which is a reflection of price. It's a, it, track the currency out of it, so, so to speak. But in the case of gold, uh, I had chance to run a 200-week moving average oscillator. Uh, mm-hmm. we, everybody's accustomed to 200-day. It's a very popular average. Well, the same concept applies as the 200-week, but instead of looking at where that average is, we look at how is price uh, in relation to that on an oscillator, how much above, how much below. So you have a plus side of the equation and a minus side. It oscillates. Mm-hmm. Over the last year, gold has hit various peaks starting at 1370 uh, in July last year. It had a secondary peak at 1350s, 1330s. Uh, there was another one on the way down in that correction in, uh, to the December low of the last year. Then we popped back up this year. We've made three highs in the 1290s. This past, uh, this week, uh, a month ago, and a month before that. But all of those peaks, if you look at them on a price chart, there's no alignment to them. There's no trend line that connects them perfectly. They're mm-hmm. not, certainly not equal to each other. But when you run a 200-week moving average oscillator, each of those peaks is precisely 5% over the 200-week average. Then mm-hmm. when you plot the oscillator, I've got seven hits on a horizontal line at 5% over, which is a shallow level. I mean, you can get 20%, 30 40% over if you want to. Uh, that is a structure that if you go through there and you go to 6% over and blow through that horizontal year-wide mm-hmm. structure on this momentum chart, that is a big-scale, time-scale oscillator. 200 weeks is like a four-year average. Mm-hmm. So we've oscillated above it 5%, 5%, 5%, seven times now. So there is a structure mm-hmm. there. This is why we call ourselves a momentum structural analysis. Mm-hmm. If you hit 6% over, and that is 1303.50 mm-hmm. over the next several weeks, because the 200-week average is basically flat now, that's a sure. breakout. So I'm saying that about 10 bucks above the recent high, I've blown out every single high of the last year, even though price is still well below the high of last year, which is 1377. 
But I would get very excited if gold touches 1303.50 any time in the next few weeks. That number will change slightly uh, going forward. But that structure looks pregnant. It looks like it's, it's almost destined to come out. All right, and where might we go then, Michael, if we get through that? What, uh, I, think you're going, I think the first thrust could take you into the 1500s. Wow. And, and by oh, thrust, could... I mean something that could occur in a matter of, if you go to that 1303.50, it would not shock me that you're in the 1500s within several months. Wow, that would be uh, music to the ears of all of us uh, that are on the long, long side of the junior gold yeah. share markets, that's for sure. Well, thank you very much, Michael. We'll get you back well, next week, and when you can talk a little bit longer about some of the other markets, I thank you so thank much you, for Jake. sharing that. That's very important information to the listeners of this show. Uh, thank you so much. All right, folks, well, we do have to go to commercial break, but don't go away because Dr. Quentin Henning of Novo Resources will be with us to talk about this exciting discovery Maybe the next Whitwater's Round discovery in northwestern Australia. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Dr. Quentin Henning. Oren Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Oren is operated by the same team that founded Asenko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over two. $200 million. New Range Gold Corps is a Canadian junior explorer focused on its recently acquired flagship Pamlico Gold Project, located in Nevada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. Known as one of Nevada's highest-grade gold districts, Pamlico was held by private interests for most of its history and remains largely unexplored. Drilling by New Range is already confirming the legendary grades of the district with intercepts up to 341 grams gold per ton. Well-financed with no debt, New Range is unlocking shareholder value at Pamlico and trades under TSX, symbol NRG. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have Dr. Quentin Henning, the president and CEO of Novo Resources, with me here once again today. Dr. Henning has been on this show numerous times over the past several years, so for many, if not most of you, he needs no introduction. For those of you who are not familiar with him, I suggest you do some quick homework starting at Novo Resources' website. That's novoresources.com. Before I say hello to Dr. Henning, I would like to tell you that Novo trades in Toronto under the symbol NVO. 
You can buy it in the U.S. as I have under the symbol NSRPF. There's 116.7 million shares outstanding, and it closed this past Friday in Canadian dollars at $3.60, in the U.S. at $2.87, giving a market capitalization of around $420 million in Canadian money or $332 million in U.S. money. There are, according to my records here, 160.1 million fully diluted shares. Uh, the company has some $14 million dollars in the bank, but I believe a lot of those shares are now starting to be turned into outstanding shares as many uh, investors are starting to convert their warrants. At least that's my understanding. In any event, uh, thank you for joining me today, Dr. Henning. Thank you, Jay. Your stock has uh, exploded higher since mid-July when the markets caught on to the fact that you may have indeed found what you have personally been looking for over the past 13 years, namely a Witswaters Rand type gold deposit. For listeners who may not be aware of what the Witwaters Rand deposit means in terms of past gold production, can you talk about the size and significance of those South African gold fields and why finding another one, if indeed you have found something like that, uh, would be very significant for Novo Resources shares? Yeah, it's a good starting point. Look, uh, the Witwaters and Basin in South Africa is the most prolific gold field on earth. It's produced roughly a third of the world's gold production over history. It was found in 1886. Um, the deposit or deposits are hosted by sequences of sedimentary rock. Uh, in particular, there are conglomerate horizons that host considerable gold, but there's also this uh, unique style of mineralization called a carbon leader, a very thin carbon seam that is very rich in gold as well. Both the conglomerates and the carbon leader have been mined uh, continuously now for what, well over, uh, what is it, 130 years, I guess, uh, and have produced at, at 1.6 billion ounces out of multiple mines. Okay, so to give you a perspective of size, um, the basin is about 300 kilometers long and about 150 kilometers wide. Quite sizable basin, but it's also a very significant basin because it's one of the oldest basins on Earth. If you look back to early Earth history, there was not much continental crust. There were not many continents or large blocks of land to, to deposit a sequence of rock like this. So it's a very, very uh, unique setting. It's a very unique period in geologic history, as you know. Uh, cyanobacteria evolved during that time. Oxygen came to be, you know, my thoughts around the, the uh, formation of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Pilbara Craton here in Australia is the same age as the Capwell Craton in South Africa. And it seems you know, my, my thesis for coming here is that it was it would be prospective for similar deposits. And as you know, we've been chasing uh, conglomerate hosting gold in the East Pilbara for several years now. We have the deposit at Beaton's Creek, and we have uh, other occurrences at Marble Bar. But this area in the West Pilbara, this is the extreme northwest corner of Australia, it remained underexplored. There was really no mention of conglomerates out here, at least not significant conglomerate sections in the, the strata out here prior to this discovery. So this is a, it's a new deposit. Yes, it shares similarities to the Vidwater Strand in some respects. Other respects, it's quite different. Very coarse gold, you don't see that in the vents. Uh, very, very what we call uh, immature conglomerate, meaning clasts in the, the you know, the uh, matrix and so forth of the, of the conglomerate is uh, is very uh, uh, heterogeneous, like a lot of mm-hmm. different rock uh, and stuff, whereas the quartz, uh, the conglomerates in the vents are the quartz pebble type. Okay, so there's some distinct differences, but but in terms of uh, you know potential magnitude, you know I'm hoping that this, this discovery we've we've latched onto here could turn into something similar. 
Could you talk a little bit about um, the perspective magnitude? I know that uh, publicly you've talked about, I think it's eight kilometers of strike along which I guess, as I, according to my understandings, would be the sort of the shoreline of an ancient seabed perhaps, and that along those eight kilometers uh, there have been pretty predictable discoveries of gold nuggets using uh, using metal detectors. Do I have that right? And <clears throat> could you just talk a little bit about what the perspective size of this might be, underscoring the word Mike, because we're you're obviously in the very early days. Look, uh, so we were, I was out at a site today, uh, spent all day there, and you know, there's prospectors out there. This is Saturday. Uh, people go out on the weekends and they, they collect gold nuggets, you know, using metal detectors, as you say. The area was intensely explored uh, about uh, say late last year, say uh, from the period of September through oh, April or so, you know, and people really swept the area hard. It's it's diminished somewhat, but uh, what we have left behind are just millions, literally just millions of little holes in the ground where huh. people have dug small gold nuggets, right? So what this does is it, it kind of blazes the trail for us. You know, we can look at the ground and we can go, holy cow, you know, there's a lot of gold coming out of these rocks. And we can trace it along the surface. So as you walk along the strike of the beds, this is where these things daylight, you know, you just see one hole after another. And, uh, you know, people have asked me repeatedly, you know, they say, well, you know, is it concentrated in one part of the conglomerate section or this or that? Or, you know, were we selective with their sample or, what? you know, whatever. There's a lot of people that speculate about how the gold is distributed and things. And they, mm-hmm. look, from what I can see, people are digging up nuggets the whole way across the section. Okay, so the conglomerate horizon at Purdy's is about 11 meters thick or so. Elsewhere along strike, there's, I think, the maximum thickness is on the order of 20 meters. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are also places where where there's basement topography. The conglomerate actually rests on, on basement rocks. Mm-hmm. And the conglomerate might be a few meters thick, you know, mm-hmm. say two, three or six, something like that. So it kind of undulates. It pitches and swells along strike. But that said, it appears to be fairly continuous along strike. People have found nuggets literally the whole way, uh, you know, minus a little segment where there's a dike and there's some uh, riverbed that covers up the thing. Uh, we found nuggets the whole way along, or dig holes the whole way. Hmm. Yeah, in fact, uh, you know, obviously a couple of the risks have to do with this continuity of mineralization as well as grade. And I think in one of your press re- releases, you actually mentioned this, that the sort of consistency of uh, uh, of these metal detectors um, discoveries along this eight kilometer strike length is uh, might bode well, I guess, for the for the possibility of continuity. Eh? It, it does. We're very hopeful. Um, you know, where we dug our trench, for example, um, it happened to be at the top of a hill. So when, when this thing occurs in, in uh, the field, what you see is that the, the top of the unit forms a dip slope, what we call a dip slope. Like the hill's surface uh, dips off and follows that top horizon mm-hmm. fairly closely. Uh, but the, the other side of the hill, if you will, cuts down through the section, all right? So the reason we took the sample where we did is because it's flat at the top of the hill, and it was just easier to excavate at that particular spot. Uh, so there was no, you know, we didn't horn in on, uh, you know, something that we saw as being potentially higher grade than anywhere else. We just grabbed a, a sample at the most convenient location. You know, that said, there's a lot of work we need to do to uh, to show this thing is going to work. Um, but there's some very important data that came back out of this trial that is encouraging. Uh, there is evidence based on the ore sorting process we use. There is evidence that the uh, there's a finer grain gold component, uh, dis- you know, pot- potentially disseminated mineralization between and around the nugget. 
Hmm. which can be very important. Uh, you know, think about it. If you're trying to drill a nuggety system, think of it like drilling a raisin cake. You know, your odds of hitting a raisin are so-so. But uh-huh. if you if you have, uh, you know, disseminated smaller raisins in between the big raisins, you know, your odds are pretty good. So it's uh, it's it could be potentially very helpful, this fine green gold component. Well, that's helpful in knowing that you weren't uh, sort of cherry-picking your, your sample, is what I'm hearing you say, because when you come up with a grade like you did, I, what, what was the size of the, of, the, of the sample? Sure. When we collected it, uh, we thought it was around 700 kilos, but, you know, we're guessing out in the field. So we, we chucked the rock in, in two different drums that are each designed to hold about three 350 kilos, something like that, mm-hmm. and... The samples ended up being, I think, 270-odd kilos. Uh, I think it talks about it in the news release. But, um, you know, so collectively, I'd, I'd say the total sample weight was like 550 or 60 or 70 kilos, something mm-hmm. like that. A little over half a ton, all right? But uh, what's really interesting is you look at the photographs of the gold particles that were recovered out of each subsample. Um, it's not as if one nugget was was determining the grade of the sample. Uh, what you see is you see, you know, a, a dozen or, or more little nuggets that constitute, you know, the bulk of the gold in the sample. That's interesting. That says that we have a fair number of raisins in this raisin cake. Okay, so that helps in itself. But then off to the side of those pictures, you'll see little particles of fine gold. And that gold is also very uh, important. It, it could help us, you know, kind of smooth out the picture, if you will, when it comes time to, to talk about resource and, and continuity. Mm-hmm. Well, I believe uh, my friend John Kaiser did a little back-of-the-envelope calculation there and come up with uh, something like 9.1 grams per ton from that sample. Uh, uh, out of 67 a little more than 67 grams per ton was the fine gold. So, I mean, obviously this is just one sample, and but it's an amazing number when you think about it. I, I wonder if you don't think that maybe these kinds of numbers have fired up the market to the point where it is getting a little bit overzealous, a little bit overdone. We're certainly going to need to see, as you mentioned, lots and lots of work to be done yet before we can start to get a, a real scientific understanding of what's there. I would say, you know, this is a, it's a very speculative story. Uh, you know, obviously it has big potential, and I think the market's clued into that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we haven't drilled a hole yet, okay? So, you know, yeah, I would say it's, it's, uh, it's had a pretty good run given that we really have no drill holes, no, uh, you know, trench sampling and so forth. There's lots to do, but at some point, you know, out in the, out in the future, once we have some drilling going and, and trenching, there will be some hard numbers to hang our hat on. Uh, right now, speculation driving things, I would say uh, three months from now, hard numbers will be driving it. Well, wow, that's that's really interesting. So that suggests that we're going to be seeing some some pretty regular data coming coming out from assays and so forth. And what what how soon? I, I believe your bulk sample is being used in in large part to help establish a sampling and and um, assaying protocol. Is that right? That's right. So we use a machine uh, that sorts rock particles. So uh, in the process, we crush the rock down to pieces smaller than six centimeters, which is a little over uh, two inches. So pieces of rock down or two inches and in, in smaller. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you feed it through this machine, which has an x-ray device on it. Uh, if anybody's put an x-rayed uh, gold like through an airport x-ray machine, it comes out dark black, you know, because it's a very dense element. Uh, so the, the machine can pick up on those little gold nuggets all the way down to two millimeters. It can hmm. see very small nuggets. Uh, and it does a fantastic job of sorting those particles out from the rest of the material. 
right? So that in itself uh, reduces our sample size, uh, at least our, our concentrate size, dramatically. You know, only 2% of the, the mass of the samples ended up having coarse gold particles in it, right? So, so now this is important, right? Now we can use this machine and we can say, okay, let's sort it, right? produce a concentrate we can assay that concentrate more or less in its entirety in some way shape or form you know perhaps green metallics or even uh, aggressive cyanide lead something like that mm-hmm. and then we can also assay the tailings okay so the rock particles that did not get picked up by the machine we can then crush uh, and treat those almost like you'd treat a regular rock sample that we can do uh, for instance a leach well assay or something like that and then we com- we can mathematically combine the numbers to produce uh, a grade for that sample. Wow! It's a, so is this possible that 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 technology might be used in a mining? I know we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but if you're able to use that to get rid of non, as I understand it, non gold bearing rock, to be able to separate that out from the gold bearing rock, and and you mentioned in your press release that you could handle something like forty eight tons per hour. It almost sounds like it's approaching some sort of commercial size. These machines are actually developed to sort uh, waste materials, okay, so in either industrial waste or, or household waste, right? So the machines are actually designed to sort, very quickly sort, uh, you know, metal out from plastic or, mm-hmm. you know, something like this, right? So they're, they're actually designed for high throughput. Um, the machines that they use for ore sorting are, are modified somewhat, but, but they do it very quickly. We put our sample through the machine. I think it took all of about 10 or 12 seconds for the thing to process, you know, one of the 250 or 60 kilo samples, right? So it just whack, 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 it, it's done. It's like, wow, that's mm. amazing. Um, does it have commercial application? Uh, quite potentially, okay. Um, very, very interesting. You know, here we have a deposit where we have a very, very serious coarse gold issue. But now we're talking about a machine that can literally, uh, at very fast speed, uh, you know, sort out rock particles that have, you know, vi- uh, metallic gold in them. That's amazing. You know, this, this could be a, a very significant breakthrough for us at some point. Wow. It's, yeah, that is, that is quite exciting and, and uh, certainly something we'll be watching for sure. Uh, getting back to the idea of the, the potential size of this, in our last discussion, last time you were on this radio show, you talked about a deep hole that was put down. Well, I think it, it must be something like 50 kilometers down dip south of Purdy's Reward, where you're currently take, where you, from where you currently you took that recent sample. Uh, and as I recall, that you said that graded something like 12 grams per ton at a depth of something like 1,700 meters, if I remember correctly. Um, how, how much do you know about that drill intercept uh, and what the nature of the gold in it was? Do you, do you have any understanding of that? Sure. The, the report is actually publicly available. It was a hole drilled by CRA, which is an Australian company. They drilled it looking for, uh, they, they, you know, they were interested in gold, obviously, but they were also looking at other potential economic minerals. Uh, I think they were looking at diamond and uranium as well. Um, the, the hole, the total depth was 2,200 meters or so. Uh, it went, it was a vertical hole. It went straight down through the entire sedimentary and volcanic sequence. Mm-hmm. And it went into the basement rocks at the end. All right. So uh, most of the hole was in the volcanic and, se- and sedimentary rocks that we see at, at Purdy's. Mm-hmm. Um, it uh, hit this reef that you mentioned, it hit a horizon, uh, at about tw- uh, 1,756 meters, I believe it was. And it hit, uh, they, they had one assay out of there that ran 11.7 grams per ton. Mm. Now, 
the the rock, the photographs from that core, uh, we've seen them. Uh, the interval that ran is a kind of a pebbly, uh, sandy conglomerate. And the class in the conglomerate, uh, you know, looks similar to a lot of material we see at Purdy's. Uh, it's kind of a mix of volcanic rocks and whatnot. So there's similarities, albeit the, the conglomerate is a smaller class size, like the, the cobbles are smaller. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, it does share similarities. Now, the gold in that sample, um, you know, they didn't make mention of visible gold, like they didn't see a nugget. Okay? Mm. But but they did do a repeat assay on the, the core when it when that first value came back, and they, they re-assayed it and repeated So they we're confident the gold is in there. What's really interesting is CRA, for some reason, did not systematically sample the entire core down the hole. So they only oh. took select samples here and there. I think they took 300 and some odd samples. Um, so, you know, we, we can't speak volumes about, you know, uh, potential up and down the hole. One thing is interesting, though. Uh, in the log, they mentioned towards the bottom of the hole, there is a what they call a basaltic uh, conglomerate. Uh-huh. It's a con- comprised of basalt class. It's very rich. Well, Purdy's Reward and, and Comet Well, the conglomerate we have, is very rich in basalt class. All right. Now, funny enough, I don't see assay data from that bottom. That's way down towards the bottom of the hole. It's uh-huh. right above the basement. And that's where, where Purdy's reward is. It's sitting right on basement, right? So it's intriguing. You know, we see at least enough to be dangerous. You know, I'm not going to say we can <laughs> anything, but, you know, the fact that they hit gold and they're seeing lithologies that are similar is, is very, very intriguing. Indeed, it seems to be. Well, it's it's my understanding, Quentin, that the, the Pilbara Craton or basement rocks uh, where Novo was exploring in that general area, that this been this has been a very, geo, uh, say, geologically speaking, a very quiet area for a very long period of time. Does that bode well for the potential for these structures remaining in place, I would think? I mean, if you had a lot of seismic activity, a lot of earthquakes and, and, and things going on, you would be breaking up and having more faulting and so forth. Do, as an amateur geologist here, am, am I thinking correctly about that? There, There is a lot of truth. The Pilbara is a remarkable place. You, know, you think back and you think, gee, this rock's been here for 2.79 billion years, and it's been skittering around Earth. You know, It's been in all sorts of uh, latitudes and you know, bounced around, but the darn stuff is still flat as a pancake, or near <laughs> flat, you know. It's just amazing. It's like it's a freak show. The paper is unique. Yeah. So, well, time will tell. Any ideas or any plans to do any any deep drill holes? I know your your focus has to be right now on on what's at the shoreline or what's on surface there. But any do you expect that you may be putting a couple of deep holes down somewhere just to sort of check this geology? Yeah. You know, that's a good question. We're, we're bouncing a lot of ideas around about how we're going to approach this right now. Um, it's clear that we have to do large diameter drilling to get representative samples, or at least samples that are somewhat representative, we'll say. All right, so that's a given. But we are looking at, at ways we could um, kind of like, we'll, we'll treat it like a triage approach, okay? We could go out and drill some core holes that we call strat holes just to poke down and see what rocks we're dealing with uh, prior to, to large diameter drilling. And that way we can kind of, you know, at least have a peek at what the, the rocks we're getting into look like, right? And then when we drill our large diameter hole, we can be better prepared to know where the potential target is and, and how, you know, how we're going to drill through it, where we're going to take samples, et cetera, et cetera. So, look, there's a lot we don't have set in stone yet. We're, we're working on the drill program as we speak. Uh, are we going to drill deep holes? Um, yes. In time, we definitely will. 
if we want to show this thing could be a very large goal system like we hope, we have to be bold and step out into the basin mm-hmm. and drill poles. Mm-hmm. Uh, Quentin, I noticed last week you announced you picked up a, a bit more ground out there. Um, you, I saw on your website you're talking about something like uh, 10,000. What what so what is your target there? Um, Ten thousand square kilometers or something like that. I mean, your last I saw you had something over nine thousand square kilometers. Are you nearly finished in your land accumulation program there? <laughs> A lot of people ask that. Um, okay, so geology is an iterative process. All right, we we go out, we learn, we come back, we think about it. Mm. Maybe we should look. At this. Maybe we should look at that. Uh, am I going to say we're done picking up land? Yeah, not quite. Okay, but am I going to tell anybody where we're what we're thinking? No. Okay, so it's just going to be one of those exercises of patience. Uh, we're learning just as much, uh, you know, every day as you know as we were back in June. Okay, I mean, like literally, we're we're learning a lot every day. Sure. We look on and we decide what might be a valuable asset to us and, and you know I approach the owners and it's a very nice place to work because a lot of the owners are local and I can go have a beer with them at a pub you know yeah. the guy we just struck a deal with I had uh, I had fish and chips with him at, at the Point Samson uh, pub last yeah. Friday mm-hmm. we shook hands we got a deal done it's that simple <laughs> The old-fashioned way, huh? And 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 the lawyers, uh, we don't want them to mess it up. But at the same time, we want to protect ourselves because it certainly is. As somebody's pointed out, one of the risks inherent anytime you find a huge amount of gold, if that's in fact what's what's underway here, uh, greed starts to come into the picture, and people start to find reasons to believe that they should have it and not you. Uh, look, we uh, you know everything uh, is coming together favorably. We we would like to hope that that continues. Let me ask you before I let you go one one question about Beaton's Creek because as you know I've been following your story for the last three four four years or so and Beaton's Creek until this this latest nugget discovery Beaton's Creek was your primary focus and I think you're, officially you're still saying it is but where does that stand now because that that in itself looked interesting to me and looked promising to me I know a lot of people didn't pay much attention to Novo until the nugget story surfaced but you're moving forward with a feasibility study or at least you would you were before this latest um, excitement took place what can you tell us about your plans for Beaton's Creek now and I know that you had signed a memorandum of understanding with Sumitomo for them to come in and use some of their expertise to help you there but but could you comment just briefly on what your plans are for Beaton Creek Beaton's Creek certainly look our our plans have not changed Uh, you'll notice that our team has grown quite a bit Uh, brought in a new CEO a couple of months ago he's a huge help great guy uh, Rob Humphreyson and he is helping me bring yet further staff on board, and we are moving Beaton's Creek forward just like we, we said to the market uh, back in May when we did our raise for $15 million. Uh, we have uh, a lot of drill data and trench data that's, that's currently coming back. I put a release out about two weeks ago talking about uh, you know an update, if you will, of Beaton's Creek. We will have a resource uh, put together, say, by mid-September, get that out. Uh, and then proceed with our PFS. So everything's on track there. We are working with Sumitomo, and we would be delighted if they uh, decided to to come in and help finance that uh, that operation. Mm. All right. Well, we're just about out of time now. But what? How well funded are you? And and what should people be watching for? I mean, next couple of weeks or so. What what might we expect to see coming from your from your press releases? Yeah, sure. Look, uh, we, we have about $15 million, as you said, uh, warrants are in the money, so we're seeing some of that money come in. 
on a routine basis at this point. Uh, we do have uh, some warrants that will come in in September. We, we reckon the news flow over the next few weeks, uh, we, we plan on uh, consummating the Artemis uh, joint venture deal mm-hmm. in the near term. We plan on uh, announcing commencement of trenching and drilling sometime later this month or early September. Lots of lots of news coming. Okay, there's potential land deals. There's a few other things, but we'll leave it at that. All right. Well, thank you very much, Quentin, and all the best to you. It's my largest shareholding, so I'm watching this with more interest than anything else that I follow, and it is really an exciting story. Thank you for all your hard work and and your persistence in hanging on to this, uh, moving it forward. It's really exciting. Thanks very much. I hope we can talk to you again sometime soon. Thank you, Jay. All right, folks. Well, don't go away. Uh, after the commercial break, Alistair McLeod will be with us. And Alistair always has some great insights into the gold markets. And I'm sure you won't want to miss what he has to say as well. So we'll be right back. Novo Resources focuses on the exploration and development of gold projects. Its flagship asset is the Beaton's Creek Gold Project in Western Australia, where it is currently upgrading and expanding on its resources to produce an economic study in Q3 2017, followed by construction in Q1 2018. Novo enjoys a strong balance sheet and supportive shareholder support from the likes of Eric Sprott and Newmont Mining. It trades in Canada and the U.S. under the symbols NVO and NSRP. RPF, respectively. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to have with me once again Alistair McLeod. Alistair has a background as a stockbroker, banker, and economist, and he is a senior fellow at the Gold Money Foundation. His weekly articles are written for Gold Money, and they're posted at goldmoney.com, and I would highly recommend that you you get on the mailing list, uh, if if possible, and I think it is possible. Um, Alistair will tell you how in just a second. So um, thanks for joining me, Alistair. That's very much my pleasure, Jay. Yeah, and specifically, before we go on uh, to the topic of, of the day, Follow the Money, the article you wrote on August 13, how can people, can they get on, an, on a mailing list? Because I get your articles emailed to me, and then I click on and go to the, to the website and, have, and read them there. Oh, uh, I don't know. Um, I don't, I, I think you money? probably said, well, yes, I think if you send a request through the gold money, um, then uh, I'm sure that, that they will come up with a solution. Um, I think normally what happens is that uh, my articles are published on the Thursday, um, uh-huh. sort of round about lunchtime, I suppose, Eastern, and uh-huh. um, you know people sort of tune into it there. Good. Um, I do. I do have a small um, uh, distribution list of my own, but I don't. I don't okay. want to expand that. <laughs> okay. All right. Be, be Fair enough. Well. Friends, well. As it were. 
Well, I just highly recommend that people try to yeah. get, get on the list or at least go to Gold Money and check it out. You and a couple of other writers are there that provide, I think, very, very good insights into what's really going on as opposed to the, to the, mainstream, uh, uh, the mainstream view of things. And, and specifically, when I ask you about Follow the Money, that was an article that came out on August 3rd. Um, you mentioned in there that really the, the credit cycle has an awful lot more to do with the value of markets than the fundamental values. And uh, in that article, you said there's basically four phases to the credit cycle. There's recovery, as which we had after the 2008-2009 uh, debacle. Then there's an expansion period, which leads us up to a crisis period, which then ends in some sort of a destructive market phase, and then we start all over again, I guess. Can yeah. you perhaps talk about each of those phases a, a little bit, describe them for our listeners? Yes, of course. I think it's um, this, this is a very, very important point. People seem to think that um, the world is in a business cycle. We know that there are ups and downs in business, and we know that there is a cycle, if you like, of those ups and downs. But what people just do not appreciate is that it's not a business cycle, it's actually a credit cycle. And I think this is desperately important. Um, central banks don't realize it's a credit cycle. They think it's a business cycle. They think it's a problem uh, of the, um, uh, you know, of, of, of the free market. And it's the free market that needs control. It's not that at all. It is the credit cycle that central banks impose on free markets. And those phases that you mentioned basically are what happens every time. You know, you, 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 you've got a sort of, it's, 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 um, it's, it's a sort of closed loop, as it were. So you can start any way you want describing it. Let's start with a crisis. You, okay. you start with a crisis. Um, suddenly, you've gone from inflation, fear of inflation, to fear of deflation. Banks are about to go bust or could go bust. Uh, businesses um, are having to lay off people and, uh, you know, all those nasty things. And, of course, the central bank is appointed by government to try and stop the crisis happening. So basically, they throw money at the problem. They will counteract any contraction in bank credit with an expansion in the quantity of base money, the, if you like, the money that the central bank creates from its own balance sheet. Um, so uh, that's what happens, and that's what happened in 2008-9. And uh, at that time, I think the Fed effectively wrote an open check uh, it came to a, a total if you totaled up everything it was around about 13 trillion dollars mm. on an economy at that time of about 14 or 15 trillion i mean this was massive basically what the fed was saying is you know we will give you as much money as you need just don't go bust said that to all yeah. the banks um we I, it, this is fresh in our minds because that was the last mm -hmm. one um then what happens is that we have a, we, we breathe a sigh of relief. The banks aren't going to go bust, um, so we don't lose our money. Um, but business conditions are still terrible, and we sort of worry about it. But because the central bank has reduced interest rates right down to try and expand the quantity of its base money and to encourage banks not to foreclose on um, uh, over-indebted customers who can't afford to pay high rates of interest, perhaps they could pay a lower rate of interest, um, then what happens is that we gradually get that confidence returning. And this is the sort of recovery phase, as it were. 
Throughout all this period, of course, the banks are lent on by government and by big business to make credit available for big business. So you had people like General Motors, for example, in, in, in America, who got into great difficulties um, in the wake of the, uh, you know, the, the, the mortgage scandals and the financial crisis um, uh, that, that occurred then. Um, they get supported by the banks. And um, so the banks support it. And then uh, the banks sort of continue that support, like they will make money available, credit available to companies for share buybacks uh, so that companies can increase their earnings that way. Now, that's the sort of deal which, at a time of great concern, a bank can deal with. It looks at that as a relatively risk-free operation. So, so it's quite comfortable doing that. Meanwhile, it's not really lending to the bulk of, uh, of, of industry. The 80% of industry, which are the medium and small size companies, all, all those little businesses and all those towns and villages up and down the country, they find that they on you know they go along to the bank and the bank says um, you know I'm sorry but um, you know we're just not prepared to lend you money, uh, but that gradually begins to change, and it changes in such a way that the banks begin to think well our balance sheet at the moment is all tied up in government securities, short-term government securities. Those, the prices of those seem to be going down. And if you look at something like the five-year bond, for example, the US Treasury, five-year Treasury, that, bot that, that topped out with a yield of about, I think, 0.62%, uh, uh, something like that. Mm -hmm. It's now 1.8%. Um, that was a few years back. I think that was back as, as far back as uh, 19, uh, sorry, 2012, something like that. Yeah. So, um, you know, the banks are sitting on losses on their bond portfolios. They now begin to think, well, we better lighten up on our bond portfolios in order to lend money to uh, credit to, to um, you know, these medium-sized companies who have come along with decent business plans and we're a bit more confident in the economy and all the rest of it. So um, they sell their, their, their U.S. treasuries at a loss in order to put money. It's money that goes, if you like, from Wall Street into Main Street. Mm -hmm. Now, the effect on the market, as far as investors are concerned, is catastrophic because you find that bond yields start rising quite sharply, particularly at the short end, probably more sharply than the Fed would anticipate. Um, and on the back of that, of course, you find that equity prices start falling as well. Mm. Uh, this is just at exactly the time when you find that, um, you know, the reports coming in from companies are that trading conditions are improving. It's all looking tickety-boo and wonderful. But, you know, the prices are falling. So you have this <laughs> sort of odd situation where all the dreams of valuation, when the, you know, the prices were sky high and all the rest of it are coming true, but the prices are going down. But the reason is quite simple. The money is flowing out of Wall Street into Main Street. Predominantly, it is banking money that is doing this. And then you get the next phase in this cycle, and that is that the banks really get confident about lending money to smaller businesses, medium and smaller businesses. And they are completely disillusioned with their bond portfolio, if you like, uh, um, uh, of, of U.S. treasuries. And so what they do is they then compete with each other to lend now, this is an interesting point, because at this point, the Fed actually loses control of interest rates, because purely by uh, the system expanding its balance sheet, if all the commercial banks expand their balance sheet at the same time, which is what competition does, then uh, the, the, uh, the interest rate is set not by the Fed funds rate, but 
by the returning money as it's drawn down in the form of uh, of, of deposits um, uh, coming back into the banks. So it is it is actually set by the interbank rate, the wholesale market rates between the banks. Mm-hmm. And so you find that at that stage, um, you know, interest rates actually start falling in the real sense, even though the Fed has maybe raised uh, um, uh, the Fed funds rate by another quarter, another half, whatever. Do you find it's not following through on uh, um, uh, on commercial lending? And if anything, the competition in commercial lending means that uh, borrowing is getting cheaper. So you can see how distorted the whole thing becomes. Now, inevitably, uh, you start getting bottlenecks in supply chains and all the rest of it. Prices start rising at that stage. And uh, the the Fed has to raise interest rates. And it'll always do it too little, too late to begin with. And eventually, it has to really raise the rates to hit the market and try to slow this inflation, slow down the bank lending, and get control over the situation again. That is when you have your next crisis. So we've gone from one crisis through to a crisis. It's nothing to do with ordinary business activity. It is everything to do with the credit cycle. And I think that's the key point. And it's only by understanding that the the credit cycle that you can actually have a sensible investment strategy when it comes to um, uh, trying to make the best out of uh, investing in assets, whether it's stock market, property or whatever. Mm Mm-hmm. It seems counterintuitive. It really does, because you would think if things are getting better, profits are rising, um, you know, margins and so forth for a lot of the mainstream, main street businesses, that ought to be very bullish for the equity market. But in fact, it's it's the opposite, as you point out. But if you understand this cycle, I guess it can really help you prepare, because let's say we go through the the cycle and we go through the destruction phase again, then that means at some point when everything is leveled flat, there's going to be great buying opportunities again in, in the equity market, perhaps. Well, uh, yes. Um, uh, and and uh, the word if is the wrong one to use. There will be another crisis yeah. <laughs> because yes, this is a credit cycle. Um, and um, uh, yes, I, uh, undoubtedly, um, but that is the time to buy it. Um, you know, you, you've got to obviously pick pick businesses that aren't going to go bust on you. But uh, the one thing I think we can be very, very uh, um, confident about uh, is that on the next crisis, the Fed will produce, I mean, it won't be a a 13 trillion check, it'll be a 20 trillion check or whatever is required to stop this crisis actually happening. Um, and of course, the, I mean, you know, we, we can then sort of start thinking in terms of the uh, uh, inflation effect uh, after that, I mean, I right. think the, I think, I think that this eventually destroys the currency. Um, it's a process which is very, very destructive, not only of the economy but the currency as well. Um, but certainly, no, we will get another crisis um, because it is, it, it is, it is a credit crisis. The central banks will guarantee we have another crisis. So when uh, Ms. Yellen says there won't be another crisis. Do not believe her. She will make sure there is another crisis. Yeah, <laughs> she is she'll make sure to make another crisis. <laughs> well, uh, Alistair, I mean, the question then for our listeners is, where are we now? Because it, you know, we're we're seeing new highs almost all the time. It seems in the equity market, so it, it would suggest that we're still in that recovery phase, not the expansion phase where the Fed or where the banks start lending money out. Uh, I guess you would agree with that. I think that's where you think we are. The other thing that I think is very remarkable and, and was very helpful to me in your report was what stimulates banks to start lending. After all, they've been paid after the 
2008-2009 crisis to hold reserves to make sure the banking system held held together. And they've been paid, I don't know, is it half a percent or whatever, just to sit with the money. It's almost like the farm industry being paid not to grow crops. These guys are paid not to lend money almost. But at some point in time, I guess your, your, your um, analysis there as to why they start lending, they start seeing their losses on these bond holdings that they have, right? That's the, that's, the, that's the motivation for the banks to actually start lending out into the real economy? Yes, well, what tends to happen is that uh, because the banks, all, they, I mean, they're always on the wrong end of this cycle because what happens is that they buy the bonds um, when the yields are lowest because that is the point when uh, they don't want to lend any money at all to anyone except if they're told to do so, you know, to to um, General Electric or whoever it is, um, uh, you know, that is, the, that is the point where they go long of the market. And inevitably, they sort of suddenly realize that there's less risk in lending. Um, so perhaps we ought to lend some money to someone. And at that point, of course, already you find that the uh, treasuries have peaked. And remember, we're dealing in the short end of the treasury market. They would very rarely go beyond five years in terms of, um, uh, you know, balance sheet uh, uh, treasuries. Um, and those treasuries, I mean, they bottomed out, I think it was 2012. Um mm-hmm. So, so you, you know, they've already got losses on this. On yes, this our stuff. Michael, our you Michael know. Oliver, who who talks to us on this show almost every week, is convinced that we are in a new bear market for and a long term secular bear market for the long dated uh, treasuries as well. But Alistair, then what we see then in the expansion period when mainstream starts getting some money is more of the sort of conventional measurements of inflation, as opposed to the Austrian school idea of inflation. It's we start to see prices rising as as demand as as people have money in their pockets again they start bidding up the prices of, of 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 goods and services i guess and then we start to see the government's measure of inflation rising but as you pointed out the uh, the banks start raising rates but they're always behind the the curve so that the real rates actually decline when the nominal rates are rising is that right is that what you expect to see in the expansion period uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, um, <laughs> this is this is part of the problem that the Fed faces because it finds that it's got an uh, unexpected level of um, uh, price inflation on its hands uh, and um, it can't keep up uh, by raising interest rates. Now, the problem is in the real world, of course, if you're a borrower, you don't pay um, an interest rate which is adjusted for inflation. You pay a nominal rate. Mm-hmm. And if um, in order to uh, you know sort of keep... Keep, keep ahead of the game. The Fed has to raise um, uh, nominal rates uh, in the form of the uh, Fed funds rate to say five or six percent. And you've uh, got, you know, you've drawn up your business plan on the basis that uh, you can borrow it, you know, with a Fed funds rate at um, at, at under two percent. Then, you know, you've got a problem. Your your business plan suddenly is looking very very silly. And what do you do? Do you carry on with it or do you ditch it? You yeah. probably carry on and hope, yeah. keep your fingers crossed, because that's what we do. I mean, you know, we, we, we try and be optimistic about these things. But inevitably, then what happens is that the Fed has to raise interest rates yet again. And your point about um, uh, the difference between, uh, you know, real rates and nominal rates, I think, is 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 exactly the point. Because these, these companies, they pay nominal rates. And if, they, mm-hmm. if they're overgeared, uh, they are in deep trouble. And that inevitably is why you end up with yet another crisis in the credit cycle. All right, Alistair, we've only got two minutes here, but I would like to make the point, uh, tell me if you agree or not, that 
gold, it's it's very bullish for gold when you have negative rates or when the ra- real rates of interest are in decline. I think statistically, historically, that's been true. Is that your understanding? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, basically. So, so then, so then, the, yeah, uh, then the question is, if we're ready now to head into that expansion phase, the phase we're talking about, where banks actually start lending, it ought to be the time that people maybe a more opportune time to own gold and through some of the other cy- parts of this cycle. I think I think that's probably right. Mind you, um, gold, I think, even protects you uh, at a time of uh, deflation because sure. what happens with deflation is that prices start falling measured in gold. Mm-hmm. But guess what? The Fed's job is to stop prices falling measured in dollars. So what happens basically is that uh, the, 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 uh, the rate between uh, go- gold and the dollar, you find that the gold starts rising quite sharply. And that, that after all, is why in 1934, they devalued um, from 20.67, I think it was, to $35. Exactly. You know, well, um, and and we, we you know we we will face exactly the same situation again um, if gold doesn't rise uh, well before then. All right, we're going to have to leave it go at that, Alistair. Thank you so much for your insights. Always appreciated. Uh, we certainly have to have you back again sometime to pr- to talk about this more. Maybe update us on where we are in the cycle and what kind of investments might be best for different cycles. It might be a, an interesting topic. Thank you so much for being Absolutely. with us, and uh, we'll look to do it again. Uh, sometime soon. Next week, folks, we're going to have Ronan Manley of Bullion Star with us to explain how bankers try to manipulate the gold price to uh, their uh, to really coincide with their credit con games, just as uh, we've been hearing from Alistair. Look forward to having you back with us next week. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.